Osiris. This is a song about an American story. This is about your fellow Americans and what their ancestors went through. If people aren't going to like me or not going to be a fan of me anymore because I sang this song, well, good riddance. Hi, this is Maggie Rose. You're listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. Salute the Songbird is a platform for women in music to share their stories and let their voices be heard. And everyone has a seat at the table. Hey there, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the second episode of season two of Salute the Songbird. And it was an absolute honor to kick off this season with the lovely Sierra Hall. And your feedback has been wonderful. I totally agree with you that Sierra is immensely talented and clearly lovable. This week's guest is no different. She shares those same attributes, and she has an incredibly exciting few weeks coming up as she drops her phenomenal album, Wary and Strange, on June 18th, just in time for Juneteenth, which is very fitting given her powerful lyrics that were shaped by her experience as a black queer woman who grew up in the South in East Tennessee. Late at night when I feel alone, I'm talking about Amethyst Kia. She penned the epic Black Myself, which earned her a Grammy nomination for Best American Root Song and won Song of the Year at the Folk Alliance International Awards. She's one-fourth of the all-women-of-color supergroup Our Native Daughters. Her bandmates are the legendary Rhiannon Giddens, Allison Russell, she's got new music out, and Layla Michaela. In fact, don't sleep on the documentary profiling the group called Reclaiming History, Our Native Daughters, which you can find on the Smithsonian Channel. It chronicles the making of their album, Songs of Our Native Daughters, but Amethyst teamed up with producer Tony Berg and re-recorded a bombastic version of Black Myself for her forthcoming album, and it's not to be missed. Oh, and New York Times just issued a jaw-dropping article about her with a headline that reads, Amethyst Kia found her powerful voice. Now she has a sound to match it. Hell to the yeah, she has. Here's this week's songbird, Amethyst Kia. For like the first 10 years I played music, it was sort of like an escape for me. It was music was like one of the one instances where I can like be in my own little world and not have to worry about being rejected or not being liked or whatever, or being treated like I was invisible. Like I always felt seen and heard, I guess, when I was playing music and listening to other artists who in their songs conveyed that sense of like wanting to belong or dealing with loss or something like that. So, so music was a very like personal private thing for me. And so when I started performing and like playing music with other people, it was a very strange time (laughs) because uh, I just wasn't used to having to communicate anything I was thinking about anything really related to what songs I wanted to play or what key it was in or anything like that. I just didn't, I never had to do that. Well, that's a really good segue into what I want to talk about a lot with you today. Thank you for being on the show today. I'm such a fan of yours and your new album, Wary and Strange, it's coming out on June 18th. And I think that what you're saying just about navigating, feeling othered, growing up and how you put that into your music is so beautiful. And also thank you for sending me the album because I've been able to listen to it. Oh, that's so cool. A couple of times. And it's stunning. But the first time I ever saw you was at the Americana Honors and Awards show at the Ryman in 2019. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. So many years ago, it feels like. Yeah. It feels like <laughs> eons ago, but you yeah. were playing with the super group that I think made huge waves, our native daughters. Also, the documentary is amazing. Reclaiming History, Our Native Daughters on the Smithsonian Channel. Absolutely beautiful. Awesome. Thank you. To see four women come together, you and Rhiannon Giddens and Allison Russell and Layla McCalla was really quite amazing because you all are so proficient, but the energy of having four independently talented musicians come together to tell the stories that you all were telling was uh, something to take note of. And you performed Black Myself on that stage. And it was the moment that you could hear a pin drop, even though that song, you can't hear much happening yeah. other than that song, but the yeah. proverbial pin drop energy air sucked out of the room in the best way possible. Um, it was a pretty formative introduction for me to your music and just be able to see what you've been up to. The Grammy nomination that you got for Black Myself is incredible yeah. as well. So it's just uh, awesome to have you on the show. And I'm really excited for you to release all 11 tracks to everybody and <laughs> yeah want to get want to get to know you yeah tell me about the early days of amethyst and grew up in Chattown, chattanooga yeah i grew up in um i grew up in east brainerd so it was like the quintessential white suburbia there was a there was like eight churches within like a really like a one and a half two mile radius so for us you know it was me my mom and my dad it was interesting because like Early, early on, like between the ages of like one and 10, like things were, were pretty awesome. I was daddy's girl and, you know, he stayed home with me like before I went to kindergarten. And my mom was a manager at one of those pharmacy stores. I can't remember which one. She worked, <laughs> she worked at a couple of different ones. But um, and so my, my dad stayed home with me and I was really active. I like played outside all the time. I rode bikes, I rollerbladed. Later, later on, I would skateboard. I played basketball like I was super active. And just really like talkative. I remember in 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 class, my teachers would on my report card would say that she's really smart, but she talks too much. So that was like once I got past 10 and into like middle school and high school and into my teenage years, the fact that my family, we were we were secular, like we didn't go to church. And again, we were like the black fly in the milk, if you will. And that played more of a role as I got older because people within my socioeconomic bracket kind of like didn't want to hang out anymore or just they would kind of treat me like I was invisible in the hallway. It was as if, I don't know, like a flick, a switch turned on in one year and then it's just like people just stopped. What would you attribute that to? I think they were more aware of of my race. I mean, this is something that got, would like play out in like overt and covert ways. You know, I would be told that I act white because I, you know, because of the way that I talk. And this would be from white and black people. So you're just being pummeled with challenges to your identity at that age. Yeah. I mean, it just, it felt like I felt very invisible and in, particularly in like high school. And I started to have like body image issues where I wasn't seeing myself really reflected in media. And I didn't feel like I was attractive because I didn't have long flowing hair and my skin was darker. And then like, you know, I gained weight when I stopped playing sports because I liked I like to eat a lot. And I ended up ended up gaining like 40, like 40 or 50 pounds. And I just 
you know, I just felt really like out of sorts. And also like my my gender presentation, my sexuality also was something that um, I just had a lot of different you know, angles kind of thrown at me between the race, my sexuality, my gender presentation and like and my body, how I felt about that. There was just a lot of things happening at once. And so that's when like my parents bought me my guitar when I was 13. And this was kind of when all of this was starting to happen, where people were starting to ignore me that used to hang out with me. And it wasn't until later on that I realized that race was also playing you know, a role in this. And so along with the other things I just described. Um, and I remember actually at one point, you know, there was, there was this guy that I liked in high school and he happened to be white. And he said that, well, he can't date me because he's already dated a, a black girl before and his parents didn't like it. I, anyway, so there's just lots of little things um, <laughs> that were happening. And so music was again, the one thing that I felt like I could really like turn to. And it wasn't really until my last two years of high school, my parents saw what was going on with me and transferred me to a creative arts high school for my last two years of high school. And it was, if only I had gotten there sooner, right. you know? Um, mm -hmm. But I mean, with, with the way things were going again, I was playing sports. Like I, it was, it made sense to like go to the high school I was going to go to, but I also like internalized what was happening to me. So I wasn't really like talking to anybody about how I was feeling. And so for me, that sort of like talkative, vivacious kind of person that I was, like I just put my guard up and I only really allowed myself to really be myself when I felt like I 100% was being accepted in whatever group I was in. I literally was like the antithesis of like everything that... <laughs> that where I lived stood for, you know, until I went to that, until I went to that high school and everything completely changed. It was like, oh, wow, I, I can live in a space where like I'm around other people that are like just as weird as I am. Like there were the theater nerds, there were the visual art, art nerds, writers, like everybody had like a thing that they did. And that's when I started to see, oh, okay. So like, you know, I can be in an environment where I don't feel invisible and I feel like I'm valued. And I'm so grateful that my parents, you know, decided to, to, to let me decided to transfer me because I mean, at that point I was still struggling with, I still was struggling with a lot of the same things, like with the social anxiety and stuff like that, but it was better for sure. And so now, you know, especially over the past like 10 years of like, working through like my emotional hangups and also like past traumas and like working through that. I'm now at a point where in most instances I can like be in a brand new place and like feel my way out. And then I can decide, okay, I can be myself, but I don't, like I don't walk in a room anymore and I just like don't say anything because that's what I would used to do. I would just be like, I would say as little as humanly possible because I didn't want to like be rejected. You know, I didn't right. want to. It's like, well, to avoid rejection, I just won't get to know people at all. I'll just kind of keep everybody at a distance. But like you pay, you pay a price when you do that. I mean, I will say that having that sort of particular idiosyncrasy did help me build myself up musically to where I am now. Having those several years of my 20s where I didn't really have a social life. I just went to school. I just did music. 
like that set a really strong foundation for like, you know, where I am now. But the other thing that I had that's just as important is also the social aspect, being able to communicate with other people and also knowing what what you want and knowing what to communicate um, and allowing your personality to like still shine through. And I had a hard time like kind of differentiating all of that. But it takes practice. I mean, when you've kind of kept to yourself for a long time, it just takes practice to work through all that. I read that the whole practice of music was pretty insular for you. And it wasn't something that you did with a group until you went to East Tennessee University and started playing bluegrass music. And then you teamed up with these amazing women and you're trying to deliver a message that we can, if we work together, change the past, we can change the future. You you just seem really effective in welcoming people into that and, and being the leader in that. And I think everyone needs to watch this documentary because it's really beautiful mm-hmm. to see the four of you together, but you in particular have some really poignant uh, quotes where you're introducing black myself. And I think it's to a crowd, a tent full of a bunch of white people. And you say, Hey, if you're ever wondering what it feels like to be black and a lot of the things I'm talking about in this song to feel disenfranchised, then just think about any time that you were excluded or you felt oppressed because that's what it feels like. And it doesn't feel like accusatory or like you're saying anyone is the problem. You're inviting everyone to be the solution. So all that work that you're talking about that you did definitely took hold and has manifested itself. And then also what you titled this album, Wary and Strange, I think encapsulates (laughs) all those feelings. And your songwriting is just beautiful and descriptive and like it's deeply personal and you can tell that this is music that you've been holding on to for a while and this is coming from the depths of your soul and your childhood and what was it like to select these songs the sequencing of them and the juxtaposition of the sounds from one song to the next what do you think about like making the first record I feel like it's a culmination of your life's work well, with the title Wary and Strange, that's a title that I actually had. It's been floating around in my head since since high school. Like I have like two or three journals from high school where I just wrote poems and like, you know, a bunch of other things. And like Wary and Strange was something that like I didn't know what I was ever going to do with it. But like it was like a, a title or an idea that I just I've, I've always hung on to because I've felt that way for a huge chunk of my life has been that. I guess I've never fully felt part of like any particular like organization or group or whatever. I've always kind of felt like a little bit like a, I don't know, like a free agent or like kind of just kind of floating around. And it wasn't really until playing Roots music that I was able to actually like kind of feel a little more grounded in my identity as like being an American, being an Appalachian, being, you know, being queer, whatever, being a songwriter, like just being able to ground myself and identify myself in something and feeling a sense of community and connection with other people. So with these songs, and they were all really written from like various years. um, I I would say they're all written over the course of like probably the last five years. Mm -hmm. Um, And the last five years 
are the years that I've like been in therapy. Um, Mm -hmm. And well, I guess it's been six years now, but so that's when I really started digging into songwriting much more seriously because prior to that, I was like reinterpreting old time songs. I've got a couple of other records that are majority like, you know, there's some original songs, but a lot of it's like reinterpreted folk stuff like Ola Bell, like Ola Bell Reed and Vera Hall, the Carter family, like a bunch of that kind of stuff. So I wasn't really focusing on songwriting. I was just focusing on like, you know, this just like immersing myself in this music. And so the past five years, I wanted to like find a way to tell my story and how I was feeling because for a really long time, I didn't journal at all. And I realized that looking back, I didn't, I wasn't journaling my personal thoughts or feelings for a really long time because I think I was afraid of what I was going to write down. Like a big, a big part of why I ended up going into therapy was because I needed to like figure out there was something that was holding me back. And it was me not allowing myself to grieve for my mother was a huge one. And when she died, when I was a teenager. So once I started to unpack that, that's when I started journaling again. And a lot of me almost distancing myself from my emotions um, because it was so painful. And I wanted to just kind of move on with my life and not like really embody my feelings in any meaningful way. And so focusing on songwriting, it's like the only thing I could write about was how I was feeling and these experiences that was that I was having and just needing to tell my story. So when it came to our native daughters, when I started recording, we started recording that in 2018 and I wrote Black Myself and really writing any of these songs on the record, but particularly that song, that was the most confrontational song that I've ever written. I've never been so specific about a very specific topic, I think. And I guess I was a little worried about people just hearing it and thinking, well, this is just a song for black people. Um, I mean, obviously, it didn't worry me enough to not record it and like, yeah, you, you don't know, sound worried. <laughs> yeah, um, I had a, a little worry about what if there's like backlash? What if there's this or that or whatever? Because of my sort of like putting my guard up, I haven't necessarily been like particularly outspoken about, you know, my feelings about social justice and race and sexuality and all those kinds of things. And so this was kind of my moment to just be like, if people aren't going to like me or not going to be a fan of me anymore because I sang this song, well, good riddance because like, yeah, I mean, this is, this is a song about an American story. This is about your fellow Americans and what their ancestors went through. With songs of our native daughters, you wrote all of these original stories, but they're based on real stories that happened to slaves. Some of them, in your lineage for some of your band members and they're repurposed in a way especially black myself to where you can't tell what era it's from i mean you can you can look at production of the two versions and attribute what you want there but from a lyrical standpoint it's almost painful that it's so applicable to a pretty wide range of time and i'm also happy that you're reviving this song a couple years later, even though it's not old, but that you're keeping this conversation going because it could potentially feel like a flash in the pan. And this conversation's far from over, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, you know, this sustained mainstream media interest in police brutality and like 
systematic racism, which does in fact exist, although there are people that for political and for selfish reasons want to say that it doesn't exist, but it absolutely does, obviously. Um, I knew I wanted to re-record this song, but I just didn't know when. But when I ended up, when I went to LA at Sound City Studios to work with to work with Tony Berg and my um, A&R guy, Mark Williams at Concord, they were both like, so do you want to re-record Black Myself? And I'm like, yeah, I definitely want to re-record it. Because, um, you know, because my when I played it live with, a, there's a different band that I played with for a little bit. And um, we played like a more like, kind of rocking version and i'm like i think it'd be cool to like re-record it and like try some new things and they're like well, what about for this record and i'm like huh that didn't occur to me but after talking about it it was like well it's about being wary and strange it like it fits it fits the title it fits the theme and like the and the point that they made was like you know it would be cool to like you know keep keep the conversation going like kind of strike while the iron's hot i mean it's not it's not just a trendy thing that went away in like two weeks. And I feel like the lockdown definitely like made people really have to like look at themselves and look at what's going on and realize that like, oh, yeah, this is a thing that is still a problem. It's still happening. Mm. And like, I feel like people are a lot more vigilant now about keeping this conversation going. So like being able to re-release the song, it felt right. And um I'm happy people love uh, this version as well. Hey, everybody, it's Maggie, and I'm just dipping in to check in with you. And I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Amethyst. Isn't she just so awesome and abundantly wise? There are ways in which she's been othered that I could never possibly relate to. And she's carried all of that off with such grace and she's maintained a sunny disposition. And I think that a lot of that just has to do with who she is as a person. But the striking similarities that I've noticed is that she leans on her people. She leans on her father, who's her tour manager, her bandmates with whom she made incredible music with and our native daughters. And that's what makes an artist have a sustainable career. The balance is there. And she's so honest and she's fully accepted for who she is because of the fact that she's let these people in her life that she surrounds herself with really know her. And now she's letting us as her audience get to know her. And I think that it's really important to have people in your life that encourage you to do just that. It really struck me when I read the New York Times headline that said, Amethyst has this incredibly powerful voice and now a sound to match because... I feel that I've been treading water for a long time. People have always appreciated my abilities as a singer, but I haven't felt that I've had a place to land and really belong until now. So I know what that triumph feels like. And I'm just so thrilled to see that she too is feeling that and people are knowing her for who she is. And I can't wait for us all to have an opportunity to dig a little deeper and know her further. So. Let's do just that. Here's the rest of my conversation with Amethyst. It's been cool to like share this whole like music experience with him because like, you know, not everybody, not every parent is necessarily super supportive of artists. Oh my gosh, not at all. We're very lucky. 
Yeah, very lucky. You know, and also the fact that, you know, the me, you know, my my sexuality and me being queer was also a thing that for him, you know, he loved and supported me no matter what. And if I ever like had questions or advice on anything like in regarding, you know, relationships or just dealing with people in general, like he's always been there for me. So for him, well, not you to know, be like, overly personal, but he encouraged you to seek therapy and, and he's that in tune with you. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause I mean, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. You know, cause in my, I guess it was my late twenties. I had my, like, I had my party phase that I didn't have when I was younger. And like a lot of it was driven by, well, I'm 27. I want to start dating. I want to start, you know, having social life, but I still had dealt with my social anxiety. So I was like, oh, well, there's alcohol here. And everybody that I was around was, you know, drinking. I was like, okay, well, this is the social lubricant, they say. But like, it was, I was starting to use it to like continue to bury my feelings and insecurities as opposed to like facing them and really finding healthy ways to cope with my anxiety. I just kind of, no pun intended, but I, you know, poured it into, <laughs> into, you know, drinking and beer and whatever. And so, so it was like, I guess probably like 2016, you know, I, I was at this point where I was doing that, but then I also was like trying to like do grad school because like, I didn't, I was afraid to like go into the real world and I in school felt safe to me. So I was trying to do grad school. And then I was still trying to like do solo shows, play in the school band, do an internship. Like I was like just doing just way too many things at once. And finally it was like, you know, by the time I would get to my performances, I was just like on autopilot. I was just running on fumes all the time. And so my dad was like, you know, he saw that I just was how I was acting and my mood was just like changing. You were in conservation mode. Yeah. (laughs) I don't have anything left between the numbing of the partying, being on stage and having to put your best face forward. There's nothing left. And I feel like that's something I've been dealing with over this time too. And I'm new to it. Talk therapy is just, I need to do it. Or I'm going to like, my husband needs me to do it. (laughs) A lot of people (laughs) probably are thankful, but it's the, it's not having the ability to use your time when you're not on stage or doing all of this to, be a person and and giving little pieces of yourself away over time when you just keep pushing it to 11. Exactly. I mean, I think what this pandemic kind of allowed for, even though up until like 2020, I'd gotten, I'd gotten much better at managing my time. I obviously like I cut back on what I was doing. I don't, I no longer use alcohol for what I was using it for. What do you use it for to celebrate only? Yeah. What are your rules about it? Asking for advice here. Yeah. <laughs> well, so my rules are like, you know, for celebrations and also like for me, if I do have something to drink on the weekend, I really limit it to like three drinks over the course of the weekend. So if I like get real crazy and I have like two drinks and one, <laughs> like two, two, like if I have like two beers or something in one day, then like if I have another one, it would, it'll be like the next day or Sunday. My goal is to like have zero to three drinks a week. So on most weeks, I really don't have alcohol at all. But if I do have it, it's like on the weekend and it's like in a group setting. Mm -hmm. And because I'm more comfortable with myself, I don't 
feel the need to to do it because that's what I was using it. I was using it to be more comfortable around people. But now that I can be comfortable about, around people without doing that, now it's like, okay, well, I don't really have the drive to use it like I did before. So yeah, that's just kind of my my own rule of thumb. That's awesome that you've because it doesn't feel good. Like I think I think it was maybe a, two or three months ago. It was the first time in like three or four years that I'd gotten drunk. And it took me like literally two or three days to recover. I'm like, this sucks. This is like mm-hmm. not <laughs> like <laughs> I have things to do and I feel like crap. And I just because like when you're because when you're drunk, you're not like thinking about like drinking water and saying hydrate. It's like the next day you just feel terrible. And it took me like two days to recover. And I'm like, I'm going to I'm not really into this. This is not yeah. doesn't have the same like it's not worth it <laughs> anymore at this point. At the root of all of this was my anxiety. I wasn't dealing with my anxiety in a healthy way. And if you're already anxious and then you throw in like, you know, alcohol and then, you know, you throw in, you're not sleeping that well. And then you throw in, it's just like all of those things like just deteriorate your mental health. Then you start to get really self-conscious. And then I started immediately like feeling like, you know, feeling like an imposter. Yes. And I felt that throughout the pandemic too, if we weren't touring and I wasn't out playing for listeners, like that's my A&R team. That's how I know if something's working. And yeah, I just felt like totally lost from an identity standpoint. Yeah. I freaked out for like, I was freaking out for like two or three months. Cause I was just like, it, it went back and forth for me because like I was freaking out in the beginning, mostly because it's like, wow, I had this, all these gigs lined up for the whole year. I, I knew how much money I was going to be making. I knew how much I knew my expenses and all that stuff. And then bam, it all just disappeared. So for like a solid two or three weeks, I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> like, what the hell's happening? Um, and then the virtuous gig started to trickle in and I'm like, okay, like, um, this is this is fine. I've been starting to see some more, some money continuing to come in. That's cool for me personally this year and years going onward for because I'm going to be touring a lot for these next you know these next you know album cycles. Yes, go check out Amethyst tour yeah. dates on her website amethystia.com. Yeah. yeah, you're busy and you're playing yeah. some beautiful venues too. Yeah, and I and I, and I honestly I cannot wait. I'd have periods where I was just like, I just want to get in my car and just go. I just want to go somewhere. Like Mm. while I did appreciate being at home for a little bit, like it's one of those things where it's like, I like to be out and about. But it's, it's a matter of like, you know, giving yourself time to rest. So then when you do go back out again, you actually enjoy what you're doing. And I think, especially for independent artists, it's hard for us to, do that because you're like scrapping for like the next opportunity. And so like, it takes a while before you can get to a point where you actually can say no to something. Um, I feel like you can say no and like still be okay or still feel like there's enough opportunities coming that you can say no to this one. And you know that there's another door that's going to open. So it takes a minute to get to that point. So for me going forward, my whole thing is like, how do I incorporate a work-life balance with also being a touring musician? I don't know what that's going to look like yet, but we're going <laughs> to, we'll, we'll see. But I, I really do want to try to be more mindful of how I'm feeling and realizing if I'm 
taking on too much. And, you know, and, you know, I've got obviously working with a wonderful team of people who I've said all of this stuff to. And, you know, everybody is very like supportive and understanding of where I'm coming from. And yeah, I'm excited. I'm so excited to get back out on the road. It's going to be cool. Well, I really love what you do and just can't wait to hang out with you. I salute you. Thanks for your time on the show. Yeah. And uh, congratulations and good luck with the album release. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This was fun. And that's a wrap. You can keep up with Amethyst on her socials at Amethyst Kia. And of course, make sure to go pick up her brand new album, Wary and Strange. You will not regret it. And to keep up with me, my music, and my touring calendar, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at I am Maggie Rose. My tour calendar is stacked. There's no reason for you to miss us out on the road. We're playing two nights in Annapolis. We're doing shows all over the East Coast and West Coast, basically 60 shows between now and New Year's Eve. So I really hope to see you out there. And I have my album coming out on August 20th called Have a Seat. In fact, as I sit here, I'm talking to you from the legendary Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, where I got to record my album before the pandemic that I'm finally getting to share with you this August. So make sure to keep your eyes and ears peeled for that. And you can support me on With The Band, where you can get exclusive Salute The Songbird content along with new music, live stream concerts, and more. You've been listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. The executive producers are Kirsten Cluthy and Brad Stratton from Osiris Media and Austin Marshall. And the show is edited and mixed by Brad Stratton. Original music by Maggie Rose. Please subscribe to Salute the Songbird on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. And if you like the show, recommend it to a friend or leave us a review so that others can join the conversation. Thanks for listening, and to close out the show, here's Black Myself from Amethyst Kia's brand new album, Wary and Strange.
Osiris.